The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jumping to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. The gospel of the Lord is to you, Lord Christ. So we're, we're in a series in the gospel of John, watching scene by scene when Jesus interacts with people 
who he is inviting into the kingdom of God. He's commending the faith to them. He's commending himself to them as Lord and Savior. In this case, they use the word Messiah, that's Hebrew, Christ, same word, in Greek, means king, anointed king, anointed one. If you've been tracking along, and if you're familiar with the Gospels, uh, there's this kind of wave of people's experiences of Jesus, and it definitely happens in the Gospel of John, and it definitely happens here. Jesus will do these beautiful, inspiring things. He'll be radically hospitable. He'll be inclusive. He'll welcome everyone, um, religious, non-religious, really externally moral, really externally immoral, Gentile and Jew, uh, officials and people you would ignore. And he gathers them all together, and he's very clearly in his actions and his words saying, you belong with me. It's okay that you're with me, even if you don't feel like you belong here. And I think a lot of us find this incredibly attractive, really beautiful when we look at Jesus. And then he goes and says these terribly offensive things. And he'll say and do things that like seem to almost fly in the face of that. Like, is this a bait and switch or something? Like, you were sitting with tax collectors and prostitutes, very different types of people that religious people of the first century would not hang out with. And then you'll gather in, like, people who are, seem to be both oppressed and oppressor in first century Judea. And then, and then you'll say something that, like, seems to offend everybody. You see this in the Gospel of John. Later on in the Gospel of John, um, he, he meets with, like, these fishermen. And then this Pharisee, Nicodemus, and this week, this Gentile woman who's kind of ashamed to be around people, as we're going to see. And next week, a leper by the pool at the temple. And then... An official, actually that's later in this chapter, an, an official, uh, some kind of Gentile official. And then they try to make him king forcibly in John 6. But then he starts, he starts saying things that will intentionally scatter them. Like at the height of his popularity. And of course, same thing happens later in the gospel where he uh, is at really the next peak of his popularity. Where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then two weeks later, that's the the great scattering of all of his disciples, except for John, when he goes to the cross. These great gatherings, these great, beautiful, inspiring moments, and then like these things that he does that make people flee. It's like, is this Jesus guy a bait-and-switch character? But we come up again, again and again and again, if this is new to you, or this is like a second naivete that you've got to get into your system as you come back to Scripture again and relearn what you thought you knew, me included, you find out this isn't a bait-and-switch. This is just... Jesus. This is God. God is like this. God who loves you so much and welcomes you so totally and has some really, really uncomfortable things to say to you and to me. This is God. This is Christ. And so in this series, series um, our goal is to see him for the first time, or as I said, like, um, it's kind of like a second or third naivete, like, who, who is this guy again? Who is this man? Who is God again? Um, but also in imitation of Christ, trying to do it like he does it, commend the kingdom to people, introduce people to Jesus, welcome them into the kingdom if they will receive it. We're going to put ourselves 
with him. With the radical hospitality and the difficult words. I know you struggle with this and so do I right now. How do you really exercise this? On the one hand, we want to be totally and completely as hospitable as Jesus Christ and cling to even the most difficult words of Christ and his apostles. This is Jesus. How do we do this? Well, about 20 years ago, a guy wrote a book, and I am sure somebody's put this better, but his name was Paul Tripp, still an active minister in our region, actually, um, and he wrote a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And it's a great title. I mean, just think about it. Instruments, that's you and me, in the hand of the Redeemer. He's working redemption, but he does it through people like you and me. Like we're instruments in his hand. And Tripp, looking at passages like this one, I don't think he actually looks at this particular passage. Correct me if I'm wrong if you know the book. But he looks at passages where Jesus is commending the kingdom to people, and he breaks it down to four verbs, and they've never led me astray when I'm looking at Jesus' encounters with people. How do you do this? Total hospitality without shirking away from any of the hard words. Four words. Love, know, speak, do. The order matters. First you love, then you know, then you speak, then you do. I never ask you to do this, ever. Would you repeat those four words aloud with me? Love, know, speak, do. Thank you, it's that important. Love, first of all, love in this passage. In John 4, as in the other places, we see Jesus receive this woman before he preaches to this woman. He receives before he preaches to her. And I want to commend to you the idea that in this passage, we see the love of Jesus primarily in the way he crosses boundaries. There are a few big boundaries that Jesus crosses in this passage. In verse 4, we read, he's gone from Jerusalem on the way to, to Galilee. He's got to pass through Samaria, which was a big, loud signal to the first century readers. Samaria was just north of Jerusalem, but south of Jesus's and the disciples' hometowns in the region of Galilee. So here's what you need to know about Samaria. About 800 years prior, uh, the empire of Assyria to the north and west came in and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, which in the Old Testament is often just referred to as Samaria. If you know the Old Testament histories of the books of First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Israel slash Samaria at that time, the northern part, is just wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. And they, the Assyrians, repopulate that whole region with people from other places. And what happens is those new uh, people who populate Samaria kind of bring their own gods, their old, their old customs into the land. And they kind of merge over the course of centuries their customs and their gods with Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And... It's not orthodox to the Jews, their worship. In fact, it's, it's actually not. I mean, they, they, there's a real divergence in faith and practice from the faith handed on from God to Abraham to Moses and so on. So if you know anything about Jews and Gentiles or people of other faiths, there wasn't supposed to be outright 
hatred, but there wasn't mixing. You definitely didn't share water buckets with them. So there is a cultural and religious gap that was weird, to say the least, to cross. And the woman even says so. She says in verse 9, how is this happening? How is, this, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She mentions that he's a Jew before she mentions that he's a man. But that's actually the second barrier. There's a gender barrier he crosses. In the first century, um, it really was a scandal, particularly for a rabbi, to speak in public to a woman that he was not related to or didn't have some other close community uh, reason to interact with her, particularly if she was a stranger. So there's a religious and cultural barrier. There's a gender barrier. The text really draws that out, doesn't it? How is this happening? How can it be that you're not just talking to me, but asking me to help you and interact closely with you? These are scandalous decisions. Boundaries are being crossed. So just to think about love. How do we do it as he does it? Love. I, I just want you to think about for a second. Think about the times that you have really experienced being loved by another person. You've said, I, I just, that was love. Isn't it possible that you said that because, I'm, I'm, just take a second, you fill in the blank. I was so loved by them because they, maybe there was a boundary crossed. Maybe they pursued you. Maybe you shared something and they remembered it and they followed up, which took, by the way, at least the least bit of effort. Maybe they showed an interest in you. Maybe they served you. Just a simple, a simple pitch. If you want to love someone and you don't know where to start, remember their name, remember their joy, remember their pain, and carry it with you and bring it back to them. This is a boundary crossed. And if you don't believe me because you're blessed with so many rich, intimate relationships in this community, it's not that common. It's love. No. Love, no. What does Christ know about her? Okay, so I think there's at least three things maybe you can discover more that Christ knows about this woman before he really starts preaching. And he does. Actually, Jesus preaches a lot in this passage. What does he know about her? I see at least that he knows the story, he knows the person, and he knows the context. The story, the person, the context. Here's what I mean by the story. And let me just say, in one sense, Christ knows everybody, right? So we want to imitate Christ here in this passage in terms of how we love, know, and speak, and do. There's ways that that's going to break down quick. But just starting with knowing the story, the story is something actually that everyone else in the town of Sikar would have known. We're not talking about an absolutely bustling metropolis of 1.5 million people, 5 million in the region like Philadelphia. People would have known this woman's story, and Jesus throws it out there. Jesus knows about six of her either failed or scandalous relationships. Married five times. Scandalous to them. 
married five times and currently in a relationship with a man who's not her husband and presumably in a husband-type relationship without a covenant. But all that is actually just knowing the details. It's not knowing about. He doesn't just know the story. He knows the person. There's a lot of read-between-the-line moments in this passage. The first one is uh, she comes at noon. It's interesting. Last week we looked at Nicodemus. He came at night, and it was to avoid people. This woman comes at noon, and it's also to avoid people. It's the heat of the day. It's not the time when you go to a well, Jacob's well, no less, a famous well, a useful well, an abundant well, well over 100 feet deep. And it's just Jesus and the woman. Why? Because it's hot. It's when you go when you don't want to be around other people with their water jugs because you don't want to hear any buzz. She's ashamed within her community. She came at a time that she didn't want to interact with anyone. It seems like she's been ashamed of what has been done to her, most likely, and also what she has done. Let me just say here for a second, there is part of the story that is not explicit, and that's something I just hinted at. Is this really a story of this woman sinning, or is it the story of the woman being sinned against? You know, I, I don't want to rush past here. This woman was an extraordinarily vulnerable position, as most women were in Judea and Samaria in the first century. And five husbands, I mean, goodness gracious, you must assume that at least one, if not all, in that vulnerable state, that vulnerable place for her to be in, in that culture, she was the one that was abandoned. Is this a story of her sinning or being sinned against? I still have to say both. And I think it's definitely both for a lot of reasons. One, we see a similar scenario in John 8 where there's a woman caught in adultery. And it is loaded with hypocrisy for the men that drag her in front of Jesus for condemnation. And after Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, he then tells the woman, you go and sin no more. Like it's both somehow. She's a woman sinned against and sinning. But also here in this passage, twice at the end, what we read is her main takeaway when she runs back to her village to talk to people that she's ashamed to be around, by the way, remember? She says, and then the text says again, this is a man who told me everything I've ever done. There is nothing else in this conversation about what she has done, what she has done except for this part about her relationships. What's implied? She's like, he saw me. He saw the ways I was sinned against. He saw that I'm really a sinner. And it really seemed like I had 100% of his welcomed attention, and he wasn't squirming. And so you see, love and knowing gets to merge. See, what happens usually when we really get to know is that's where the love starts throwing up walls. Love, no. Let me tell you, um, it is really, really easy, maybe easier than ever to know about people without actually knowing them. Folks, your data is out there. Um, my, my friend Kevin, actually some of you have met, he's come to a few men's events at the church, is the Democratic ward leader for uh, between Norris to Columbia and Fishtown and uh, Thompson to Girard. 
which is like this really small, seemingly series of blocks, there's actually a thousand voters. And uh, my daughter and I were walking our dog yesterday and we walked past him and he was going door to door with clipboards. And I was shocked about the information that the ward leaders have about all of us, Republican and Democrat. <laughs> Apparently, I mean, oh gosh, pastors should know this, I guess. Um, it's in public domain how often you voted. Not what you voted, but how often you have. It's just out there. Everybody can know if they want to. So he had this, this, this basically script and, and on, a, on, a, on a spreadsheet as well, next to his script, of what every household in his ward had done in terms of showing up to the polls for like years. And he started with those who hadn't been to the polls for a while. Your info's out there, and he, I think, is doing pretty respectable work. But what's he doing? He's making a sale. That's putting it cynically. But we did the same thing. When we had a block party out here on, on, on Cumberland Street in August, we had to make a sale. What do we have to do? We had to go door to door and say, will you please sign this form so we can have a block party? The city says we have to have you sign this form. You know, it's not like selling the worst thing ever. It's selling a block party for free. What is much, much rarer, what is much rarer is going to somebody and knocking on the door of their heart, not making a sale, but simply trying to make an introduction. What's even rarer is when you know really what's going on with this person and you don't squirm. There's more I could say there. I want to move on. Uh, he knows the story, the person, the context. Um, it's really interesting. Jesus chooses here to speak about living water at a well. Later in the Gospel of John, he refers to him as, himself as the bread of life. It's not an accident that he does this right after he's fed the thousands with miraculous bread. Um, in, in John chapter 8, he refers to himself as the light of the world. Where does he do this? He does it at the festival of dedication, which is known to us as Hanukkah, which is the festival of lights. He's always making these contextual decisions to describe himself, to commend himself to people. And let me just say this. This isn't to the main point of what we're talking about today, but I think it really bears out. Um, people have a context. There really are times where I think we're called as Christians to speak plainly and generally without much of a context, things that are absolutely true. I mean, we have like the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, deceive, and the rest of it. We can really say these things. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's speaking to real hearts in real contexts. And it is, God bless all of you watching online, it is one of the scary things to me about gospel proclamation to Australia from Philadelphia. I just don't know really what's happening in the same way. I, I had intimate meetings probably with like 15 to 20 of you this week. Casual meetings with a few dozen more. And we're not that big of a church. There's still like a lot of people here and a lot of stories. And you better believe I'm bringing that into gestation as I'm praying through a passage of scripture and say, Lord, how are we to feast on this this week as this people in this context? Folks, where you are matters. And where the people you would commend Jesus to matters if you would actually know them the way that Jesus clearly does. Okay, I'll move on. Love, no. Speak. Jesus tells her he is the Messiah. 
but only after he has radically showered her with welcome, which is all the more wonderful the more she finds out how much he knows about her. It is really something to have someone know you and then find out that you're still loved. But from there, he does speak. He knows the good, the beautiful, the bad, the ugly, the hidden. He still loves. He feels right at home. And then he speaks. Jesus speaks a lot of words in this chapter, not of which, because I chose a passage this big, we can look at in the same detail, but we've seen some of it already. He talks to her about living water. And this, by the way, this metaphor keeps giving throughout the passage. He goes from saying, hey, we're at a well. I can give you living water, not just the stuff you can catch in a bucket. But then he goes on to say, you know, you can be a well. You don't just receive living water from me, but whatever you're drawing from in your heart, life, hope, whatever dreams you have from your life, whatever you draw from to get out of bed in the morning to come at noon so that people aren't going to be around, whatever is left of resources that you can draw from, you know you can have unlimited faith, hope, love, power, devotion, meaning. A path that leads from right now into eternity that will actually not just bless you, but bless the planet. He preaches to her about that. He talks about how and where to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're quickly getting to a place where the mountain of worship doesn't matter in the same way because the spirit is going to explode the worshipers of God all across the region when the spirit comes. He ultimately tells her that he is the awaited Christ, the gift of God that she lacks. And it's in response to these words, this speech, that she's then ultimately transformed. I want to be really, really clear here. There is no getting around the fact that the gospel is words. It's news. Literally, the word gospel means good news. The gospel is not just an experience of being loved and being known, although that is absolutely at the heart of Jesus' mission. There is a story that must be told that Jesus came to tell you individually and us corporately. If you want to, I know this might sound cheesy, but it is, it is meant for us. John says at the end of the gospel, I told you these things. He didn't tell you all the stories of people that Jesus tried to interact with and just wouldn't give him the time of day, or people who were too ashamed to even sit still and just ran away as soon as he started talking. He gave us these narratives, John says, so that we might believe. He wants to sit at the well of your heart and bring the news of his kingdom to you. And this is the news. This is the news. If you hear nothing else that I say, hear this. Jesus came to give you the greatest gift imaginable. God offers in Christ eternal life. By the blood of the Son of God, your sins may be washed away so that you may stand righteous in the sight of God. Whatever kind of sinner you are, and if you didn't know, every kind is here in this room right now. He offers his Holy Spirit to take up residence in your heart. Light casting out darkness. Truth evicting error. Holiness subduing, turning over the cravings of sin and casting them out. He offers you life beyond the grave and the resurrection of the body. But towering above all these gifts 
he offers himself to you. The living God, who Isaiah saw and said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The prophet said this. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy, he's other, he's powerful. And sinner that you are, he wants to be as near as you, as near to you as you can imagine. Close as your very breath, which is his, by the way. He offers you ultimately in Christ the gift of himself. And in response to all of this, the woman left her water jar. I won't get into that. I'll send you home with that symbolism. She came for water. She ran away, and John's very, very clear in verse 28. She left the water jar there as if to say, empty jar, empty relationships, whatever I've been doing so far cannot fill me. This man can. Come and see townspeople that I'm so ashamed to look at in the eye. Come and see in me and in this guy the one who told me everything I ever did. And here again, everything I ever did, what could she be talking about but the most shameful stuff? Folks, if we minimize our sin or the sin in the world, when we come to Jesus, we're not actually going to get more comfortable. We're going to lose all of the potency of the gospel itself. Our darkness is the context to his light. Our sins is what it makes it so amazing. It's what it makes it so amazing that he wants to be around us anyway and would cross every barrier to bring us home. He told me all my sins. And he looked right into my soul and I've never felt so loved. He can do it for you too. Do. Love, no. Speak, do. I just want to send you home with this because it's so beautiful. The last, the last thing we hear, I mean, there's a whole history. If you want to read about the church's tradition, which we don't have chapter and verse in the scriptures, this woman has come to be known in church history as Saint Fotini, and you can read about, if you want to search engine her name, uh, her martyrdom, uh, according to the tradition of the church, later in the first century. It's a very rich story that the church has boasted about for a long time. But the last we get of her in the scriptures is this story in verse 39 and 40. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Don't forget all the barriers. I mean, he's sleeping in their beds now. He's entering their doors. He's sharing their cups and their spoons. He's eating the meals they're putting in front of them. And he's delighting in the presence of a whole town representing a whole nation, representing a whole Gentile reality in the world of cast-offs. And he couldn't be happier about it. His actions are completing his message. Folks, who's around our table? I really appreciate Kevin. Dude, on a rainy Saturday, knocking on doors. Um, I'm not sure I would do that. I have done it. Larry and I have done it on this block. Usually for a reason, though, like a proximate reason. Um, 
our tables, our calendars, our Tuesdays, our Saturdays, our Sundays, I pray will increasingly reflect the boundaries that Jesus is crossing. And they're everywhere. When has it been more important that we're willing, we're willing to cross political, class, race, neighborhood lines to enact, to embody this news that whoever you are, Christ is delighted as much as he knows about you to be in your life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.